Hello, this is Dan Palitza. This is the podcast, There Are Only Waves. This is episode one, introduction. So, as I begin my podcast, I think the first thing I want to talk about is how incredibly frightened I am to start doing this. This has been a side project that has developed most recently in the past roughly two months. And I think one of the things that has been most difficult in terms of getting going on this has been... A lot of it, I guess you could say, has been life events. Um, Things that have come at me that have made it difficult for me to focus and figure out what I want this podcast to look like exactly. Prior to that, I had been thinking about a blog for roughly three and a half months or so, and that blog now exists. It is thereonlywaves.com, and I will continue to use that blog at this point mostly just to publish my podcast Part of the reason why I know this is difficult for me has been a number of, um, besides kind of life obstacles, um, the sense of professionalism that I think needs to go into a podcast. Uh, And I think that is still an important part of what I want to think about, develop through time, and it is a definitely definitely just an important thing for me um <laughs> and and i think that part of why i'm even making this podcast is to go against the idea that you need to have your crap together to do things of this nature um mind you i uh met some people that actually run a podcast company, if I understand correctly, more of a podcast consulting company, about three, three and a half weeks ago. Um, Hope to get in touch with them sometime again. I reached out to them, yet to hear back. It was a good meeting. We were in a lift in Philadelphia, and they were just talking about their job, one of those Lyft ride shares, that makes no sense. It was um, lift line. I'm sorry, <laughs> and um, they were in the back seat. I was in the front, and um, they were talking about their job. And I was there, and I was like, "That's kind of coincidental." I want to be doing a podcast, and. Um, <laughs> I interrupted them and asked more about what they did, and they proceeded to frighten the crap out of me and saying most people don't know what they're doing when it comes to podcasts, and that's why they're there. And I I understand that, and I think as I go along, I will be taking in input. Um, I think the hardest part for me as a perfectionist is just to get started. I think about my presentation. I think about the way I talk, and I also just think I'm the type of personality that if I'm not doing something actively, (laughs) um, 
I will sort of just sit back, start to get depressed, um, not move forward in anything that I'm doing, and then I look at the fact that I'm not doing things, get more depressed. And um, so I'm, regardless of how good (laughs) this recording is, I will still publish it, and I hope that those who actually listen to this will enjoy it. Um, bad, <laughs> bad speech patterns and all, mispronouncing of words, all the things that I get terrified of <laughs> in recording something and then putting it out there. You know, when I'm in a room full of people talking, a large group of people, I feel quite comfortable. All the guys are on me. I'm like, I have a crowd to entertain. I'm come from a family of two older sisters. I was the youngest child and I love attention. Let's be honest. That's why I'm doing this. Um, (laughs) That's part of the reason I'm doing this. If this was the only reason I was doing this, that would be quite terrible. Um, So yeah, I I think just to introduce the topic, um, (laughs) as you're wondering why five minutes into this, I am just talking about all the things that have kept me from doing this podcast. this podcast at its core is about appreciating life and in the midst of that vulnerability. Um, so hence all the vulnerability that I want to put out there about my creation of this podcast, about my stories, about my own appreciating my life. Um, I want this to be imperfect, honestly. I want this to be flawed. I want this to be not the most polished thing you've ever heard in your life. That is something that I want to show as an example to people because I think that most people that I meet, um, no offense, are trying to hide something. They're trying to hold back their true selves because I think that most of us in society are very afraid to show each other who we really are. I think most people (laughs) are very focused on how they come off. Uh, Are they being politically correct enough? Are they being confident enough? Are they showing their emotions in the correct way? Are they expressing themselves the right way? Will they make the most money from this? Will they get ahead in their careers? Will their family approve of them? Will their friends like them? I think I speak from personal experience. I'm not a, you know, I'm not one of those few individuals who's like, screw it, I'm just going to be myself all the time. Um, I instead am frightened often what other people think of me and have been most of my life. And I'm learning how to not do this. Um, so this is why I'm recording this. I, I want you to hear me. Obviously, I want feedback. Um, I want to develop and grow this. Um, but I also want to show my true colors um, as much as I can through recording, um, recording podcasts, um, recording this show. And... I want you to hear that. I want people to feel comfortable to be themselves. Um, I know what it's like to force myself into a box of who I think I should be so other people can like me or God can like me. Um, And I've learned 
I think I'm learning at least um, through my 31 years of life that it isn't really helpful or good. And, um, you know, one thing I've been doing recently is been working in hospice. Uh, and before that, working in hospitals, I'm a chaplain. And I get to see end-of-life situations happen all the time because of that reason. And it has taught me so much about the value of life. I record this because I realize that one day I'm going to die and the question will be, have I lived my life to my fullest? And if I am play-acting, if I am pretending to be somebody else that I'm not, then the answer to that question is no. I have not lived my life to the fullest. So it's really important for me to talk about these things. I, I, I think one thing about hopefully people that listen to this is that they can reflect on their own lives and think to themselves, what's actually important in life? What is something that I appreciate about my life? What is before me every day that's wonderful and new and good? Um, so speaking of that, I, I think the spirituality that I want to talk about in the midst of, um, my recording this podcast is more generalized, um, because I want to be for everybody. Um, I come from a evangelical background and I'm still Christian and I've also come to see people from different faith backgrounds, um, live their lives and not faith backgrounds. And I want to meet people where they're at always. Um, I want to meet myself where I'm at. And I want to talk about uh, really where I find God is in the mysterious. Um, the greater... <laughs> field, as I understand it, is called mysticism, um, which is found in multiple faith traditions, and that's what this is going to be about. It's about that mysticism, that spirituality, alongside uh, appreciating life, and I think the biggest tool to really appreciate life to its fullest is to be vulnerable um, in front of God as you see it. Um, but also to each other as people and growing through that. Um, so it's a terrifying thing to, <laughs> to talk about uh, these topics. I feel vulnerable even now as I'm explaining this, but it's something that I feel like I have to do. Um, so you're probably wondering about the name There Are Only Waves. Um, and I'm going to tell the best version I can remember of this story. Um, please forgive me if I mispronounce anything ever in any other language. I know that I can definitely grow in that area. And <laughs> um, so please forgive me for that. Um, and also, I, I think an important part for me is that while these different topics I've already brought up of appreciation of life, vulnerability, mysticism, spirituality, these are kind of key words, you could say, that are important to this podcast. Um, as a format, this is a storytelling podcast. Um, so I'm going to tell stories from my life. Uh, and I will go all over the place. And I'm 
excited to get into particularities of things that I'm just excited about. Um, you'll talk. You'll talk. <laughs> See, I'm just going to keep that in this recording. Um, you'll hear me talk about um, food, travel. Um, I live in Chicago, Illinois. You'll hear me talk about Chicago a lot. Um, just And everything else in between. Um, <laughs> whatever that means. So I want to speak out of my life experience. I want to tell stories about who I am as a person and what I've discovered about the world uh, through that. So there are only waves. Um, So as I said before, I am a chaplain. Uh, It took me a very long time to get to this point in my career as many of those around me would probably <laughs> tell me. Um, many people don't even know what a chaplain is. Um, I mean, growing up, I didn't really know what a chaplain was. I knew there were chaplains in the army, and then later on learned they were in prisons and then hospitals, and then later learned that you can literally have chaplains anywhere. There's a great PBS documentary called Chaplains. It's about two hours long. I highly recommend it. Um, And it's really cool. It's actually a really cool job that a lot of people don't know about. And how I got into it started, wow, like 12 years ago. Um, I remember feeling called to ministry, particularly to become a pastor. um, And that began me on this long road to where I currently am. I graduated undergrad with a Bachelor's of Arts in History from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, moved to Chicago to live with one of my best friends at the time, went back to my home church, um, was a custodian for a year, worked in an antique store one day a week, just minimum wage jobs, really enjoyed that year a lot, Uh, did a lot of small group ministry and college ministry and had a blast, honestly, and in the midst of that, through help from others and prayer, I decided to go to seminary, and the seminary I went to was North Park Theological Seminary, Um, and while I was there... I had several classes and experiences, um, both in the classroom or out of the classroom, that helped to further develop who I was as a minister. And one of the best things that happened to me was being forced to do CPE. (laughs) CPE is clinical pastoral education. It is something, once again, most people don't know about. Um, But... Most, I don't want to say most, but a lot of seminary students that I know have gone through it. Uh, Various seminaries require at least a unit. North Park required a half unit. And for me, I I remember hearing through different people that I should really do a full unit. Like a full unit would serve me best. And so I got really pumped for this idea of doing a full unit of chaplaincy slash CBE, um, and I had a blast. Um, it was, at the time, the most life-changing thing I'd done, and it really made a, a mark on me. 
And I left it for, uh, I want to say, about a year and a half. And I finished my degree, and I was considering what to do uh, upon my graduation. And I just really remembered, wow, that CPE unit really had an impact on me. Maybe I should go back again and try that. And sure enough, it was perfect. Um, Perfect for me, at least. Uh, I did my second CPE unit while working uh, another job uh, as in retail, and uh, and my CPE supervisor. So this is my second unit of CPE. Um, and just to, I want to pause here for a second. A unit of CPE. I'm gonna mess up the hours now. <laughs> Certain number of hours. Um, I think. Well, to say it's like 300 hours of quote-unquote being like in the field. So in a hospital, as I was doing hospital uh, CPE, I would be on the floors um, serving patients and their families, um, whatever spiritual, religious, or emotional needs that were needing to be met, I was there to meet them. So... It depending on um, how many hours a week I'm doing CPE is determining how long the length of CPE is. So I think my first unit was really long. It was like seven and a half months. My second unit was four and a half months, roughly. And so, like I said, I went back to it because I thought that was a great experience. But there was some uncertainty of like, well, maybe... You know, there were certain experiences I had in ministry at that point that weren't as satisfying for myself, and I I didn't know what was the right fit. So I was like, let me just try this out. So going into CPE for the second unit, I had a really wonderful supervisor, and um, I remembered very distinctively he began the unit with this poem, uh, El Caminante, by uh, Antonio Machado. And it was in Spanish, and I think, I don't know if he translated it or there was a translation he had on hand, um, but there were certain lines from that that stuck out. And, um, and I, it, it, it's funny because it, like, it left a mark on me, obviously, because I, years later, would come back to it. Um, but... I remember that supervisor, he was very much into metaphor and it was cool because um, one part of the CP experience um, is something called individual supervision. So there would be kind of this group supervision time because there's usually a group of students, um, a cohort, uh, my first cohort, there was four of us. This time there were six of us and a future one there would be five of us. And so there's six of us, which is a kind of large group, but I love my group. And um, that would be part of the kind of classroom time, if you will, um, not on the floors, just reflecting on ministry and um, often talking through our emotions, learning how to handle our emotions, um, the term... and. Um, CPE would be self self supervision, 
um, and learning how to do that in the midst of doing ministry on the floor because chaplaincy can be a particularly rough form of ministry in terms of just dealing with constant crises. Um, so there's that group supervision time, which you're interacting with your supervisor and all your other peers. And then there's this individual supervision, which is usually once a week for about an hour. And I, I can, I can look back at the time, which was about three years ago now and see how much in my head I was. Um, it would take me a while to figure out, um, myself, honestly, in a lot of ways. Um, but I can definitely look at that unit of CP and be like, that was the start of something for me. And, um, and it, it's helpful to kind of go back on these times, these times of just process that I was having. Um, and there were some really cool things that happened. So like I said, we'd have individual supervision, talk about metaphor a lot. That is an important part to my spirituality, especially now. I think it always has been, but like I can look back at that moment and be like, yeah, that really developed, it got me excited for um, self-transformation. And so also <laughs> part of CPE is reading, assigned reading. Um, and there was one book that really um, caught my attention. It was the first book I decided to read. We, I think we had to read four or five books in that unit. Um, this book was called A Hidden Wholeness by Parker Palmer. And I read the book very quickly. Um, it's not a super long book, but it's not a short book either. But I probably read it easily in four or five days, something like that. Um, and at least a quarter of the book describes this retreat that sounded absolutely amazing to me. And I was like, wow, this is this is a really cool sounding retreat. Like I would love to do this. And I think I can look back at that time now and being like, this is the beginning of the process of beginning to trust myself. Um, because I remember having that feeling, but also having that thought of like, I've read a lot of books by Christian authors with really cool sounding ideas. And, um, how is this any different than any other book I've ever read <laughs> with some cool thing that's being discussed? And I'm like, well, maybe I'm just making this up, right? So I think it's interesting, like, read the book. I think I remember talking about it with everybody else in my my CPE group and everyone else didn't like the book or started reading it and was like, oh, why are we reading this? How's this apply to chaplaincy? And I'm like, I love this book. This was really great in connecting myself to something deeper inside of myself. <laughs> um, so I want to say I finished the book. Week and a half, two weeks passes, possibly. Something of that length. And... I go to Washington, D.C. My my then wife was going to a group. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I forgot the actual name of the thing, but I'm just going to call it a conference. Um, and at the conference, I meet this guy who was a 
developing leader of one of these retreats. And I was like, whoa, that's really cool that you do this. And he promoted it to me. And I was like, I think I want to do this retreat. And it's really weird. I read this book and then I meet a leader of one of these retreats. I'm like, that's really strange to me. Um, so I went home, came back to Chicago and what happened at that point was I was starting to email with this guy and, um, he was telling me about these different retreats that he was a part of. One was in Colorado. The other one was in Mississippi. And in both cases, I'm like, these are really far from where I live. And these cost a lot of money. And I'm not going to do this. Like, this sounds great, but I, you know, I didn't feel like I could justify this to myself or to my ex-wife. Um, so I kind of let it alone and time passed. Um, and so I think, I think it's about a year later, a little over a year later, and I began to feel this deep need for going on this retreat. Like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to spend the money. It's going to be worth going on this retreat. And, um... And I remembered emailing this man, um, this guy I had met, and I didn't hear back from him. Um, I was a little heartbroken. I was like, well, what's going on? Um, <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens, I guess. And I got a little down on that, but life just kept going. I think literally, like, almost a month passes. And he suddenly emails me. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, he finally emailed me back. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, I'm starting to email him back and forth. And I'm like, yeah, we, we should definitely talk about this retreat. Like, I really want to go. Just let me know the dates. Like, I'm going on this retreat. And um, we finally get on the phone. And there's this weird realization that happens um, that he had right before we talked. And basically, the email address I emailed him at was his old email address that he never checks. <laughs> so he told me that, like, yeah, when I reached out to you, I hadn't seen that email. I just was going through the list of people I talked to in the past that seemed interested in these retreats, and that's why I contacted you. And I was like, that's weird. We both kind of had that, this is kind of strange, this is happening moment. Um, <laughs> but, like, maybe this is meant to be. This is, this is interesting. Um, so, the actual retreat happens three months later and the coolest part about this retreat is there's three of them in a year so there's a retreat in march a retreat in june and a retreat in october so i'm really excited because i've never done a three-part retreat series in my life and i go on the first retreat and it was very helpful for me um 
it changed my life actually. Like I, I remembered coming into this setting and feeling extremely safe. I felt like myself for the first time in years. Um, and there was all these people surrounding me that helped me to feel safe. And it, like after that, like things would never be the same. Um, so that was March of last year. <laughs> um, there was another retreat in June that was good. And then another retreat in October, which was really amazing for me. Um, and through this year, I am going through a divorce process, um, which did end in a divorce and now I'm divorced and living with a roommate <laughs> in Chicago. Um, so that was a tough time. Obviously, um, that's an important part of my story. That's probably one of the key reasons I am currently recording a podcast because I went through a very huge transformation from that process. Um, this podcast in a way is a piece of, um, I don't know, gold that came out of that experience. Um, good fruit, if you will. And, um, it, it was interesting because, um, I do these three retreats, um, finalize my divorce process, um, everything but the, actually going to court and, I begin to take a lot of trips. Uh, I've taken now five trips this year. <laughs> um, two of them were honestly road trips that were like <laughs> just side trips from going down to um, Mississippi where this retreat is. And um, those trips have been awesome. Um, I And, you know, part of the news is that I, I end up doing this retreat series for the second year in a row. And, um, yeah, um, uh, at points I, I, I'm, I'm definitely emotional about all of this, which was also part of the hesitation in actually recording. Um, so bear with me, uh, if I'm pausing a lot, I'm just sitting, um, sitting with all the things that I'm feeling currently, which... I will get into more of my feelings as uh, as the stories go along. Um, but anyway, so let's go back to February, and I I mind you, I planned this trip in February a few months out, and there and this this trip uh, basically came from me tagging along uh, <laughs> onto a friend's trip, and. It was definitely a, a life-changing experience. Um, so the trip itself was going to Kyoto, Japan, Tokyo, a side trip to Hakone, Japan, and then going to Taiwan, spending pretty much all my time in either uh, Taipei City or New Taipei City which is basically, it feels like if you ever go to Taiwan, to me, it felt like going just to a 
province or a state there. I'm not sure what they actually call them in Taiwan. Um, <laughs> and then uh, had some layovers on the way back from Taiwan to um, back to Chicago. Stopped in Seoul, South Korea for eight hours and then Seattle for four. And both times I got out of the airport and explored. Um, but uh, yeah, so my friend's trip was him and about... I'm maybe overestimating, but I swear there was like 20 people <laughs> that we're rolling deep with. Um, and most of them are running the Tokyo Marathon. So there's a few people like me. <laughs> I think there was literally like three of us total who weren't actually running the marathon. But we're like, yeah, world travel. Why wouldn't we do that? Um, so I started my time in Kyoto, which is the best city I've ever gone to that isn't Chicago. Chicago is still my favorite city in the world, which is kind of weird, but I really love Chicago. Um, but Kyoto, number two, for sure. Um, very distinctive from any place I've ever gone to. Uh, city of, I'm guessing, roughly 1.4 million people, um, if I remember correctly. And at the same time, it doesn't feel that way at different points. Very neighborhood-oriented. Um, but the the highlight of Kyoto, as many people <laughs> would know that have traveled there, are the 2,000 or so temples and shrines that are in the city. Um, many being uh, UNESCO sites. And I was so excited. Um, I woke up, I think, at 6 a.m. every day, um, which that allowed me maximum time to get to as many temples and shrines as possible in the course of my day, um, which were gorgeous. Um, I biked everywhere. It was my first time once all my divorce stuff got wrapped up where I was on vacation and I was very thankfully very far from home and alone. Kyoto was the only extended period of time where I was alone on the trip um, for multiple days on end. Um, and I loved it. It was so... Like, I look back at it now and it's still weird to me because I intentionally never traveled abroad um, in college, which I regret. <laughs> and then... Just through marriage and life choices, just haven't had extended periods of international travel. And, and to do it alone um, definitely changed my life because even though, I mean, obviously I was flying alone everywhere, um, but just to land in Kyoto um, it was awesome. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember, like, getting there was complicated because I flew from Chicago to um, Ichion um, International Airport in Seoul, um, then went to Gimpo. I had a three and a half hours to transfer, and that transfer, uh, I'm trying to remember the date, I think it was February 20th, so the Winter Olympics were still happening. Uh, and so the airport security was absolutely insane to get through. It took so much more time to get through airport security, and I'm freaking out. Uh, thankfully, I researched a little bit ahead of time, like, all the things I had to do. But there was, 
like all things in travel, there were other things that like with security, it's like, okay, now I'm putting my luggage down and it's going to go on a ramp and they have to approve of it. And they're going to show me a video. And once the luggage goes past the area that they're videotaping and they can see it goes past that point, I can leave. Um, which actually traveling on this trip happened multiple times. And for some reason before, and all my international trips, this has never happened to me. And I've gone to 15, 16 countries at this point, a time before that. So it was a little weird to be like, oh, I have another step of security that will take more time. And, but thankfully <laughs> I get on my flight to Kyoto, um, flew to Kyoto, um, which was just a cool experience to go fly into a different city other than Tokyo, which I'd done before. Um, and the, uh, Kansai International Airport, which serves Kyoto, Osaka, and, and Kobe, um, they literally built it on an island, um, an artificial island they built for it, which there's a story behind that I'm not going to get into, but, um... It was just cool to fly into that airport, and then I think it was about an hour and a half train ride to Kyoto, which was just cool. And then I got there and just began to experience that city. Um, and I can go more into Kyoto. <laughs> this is going to happen a lot when I'm telling my stories. I'm like, I could talk about this one thing for like 40 minutes, but I'm not going to. Um, today I'm trying to explain just... What's the, what's the origin of the name There Are Only Waves? So I'm going to fast forward. Um, Kyoto was amazing. I'll probably talk about it again sometime. Went to Tokyo for the second time in my life. Got to do a lot more exploring than the first time. Really loved that city. Um, still like Kyoto better. Um, Tokyo is a great international city where there's tons of things to do, um, obviously, and... Also did a one-day side trip to Hakone, which is a resort town, uh, usually just for Japanese tourists. There's not a lot of international travelers that go there, so uh, really cool area um, where you can do a lot of different things. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's in the countryside. Um, and then flew to Taiwan and... I remember when I was planning my time in Japan, I spent hours upon hours of researching and figuring out what I wanted to do. Because um, part of my time, even in Tokyo, where I met up with all of my friends, was that they were prepping for the marathon. So they're taking it easy. And I'm like, how many things could I possibly see in one day? Because that's the way I enjoy traveling, especially when I'm in explorer mode, which is the majority of the time. Um, so I'm doing as much as I can every day, and I got to go to Hakone um, with my friend, uh, my marathon running friend, who's now my roommate, um, and in Chicago. It's kind of funny how all this works out in my life. Um, and then fly to Taiwan, and Taiwan I think I had done very little research about, and maybe I did a little extra research while I was like on the train in Japan at different points. Um, but I go in there not knowing a lot. And that was a cool time in Taiwan because all these people that had run um, 
this marathon are now available to hang out and it's a fun night every night we go out and um all the daytimes are great too and we're exploring Taipei and surrounding parts of the urban part of Taipei there's a national park that's in Taipei there are mountain towns there are seaside towns there is so much to do just within you could say an hour driving of um the more urban part of Taipei the part that actually feels like a city um and so there was just great stuff happening every day I was there and we were kind of planning to go along um one of the members of our group her family's from Taiwan um and so she was definitely a part of uh learning the culture and um got to meet a lot of members of her family it was quite fantastic um so anyway (laughs) i went to taipei 101 multiple times which is one of the tallest buildings in the world um one thing about me is i love tall buildings tall structures in general Uh, when i was in tokyo i went to the sky tree which is the second second tallest man-made structure in the world um and type 101 is a regular skyscraper um unlike the sky tree which is more of a tower with some observatory decks mind you there's a lot to do amongst those observatory decks but uh if you ever get into tall structures and research you'll understand the difference between the two i'm trying to keep that simple um so Taipei 101, I remembered it particularly because um, being from Chicago, I think this is why I love tall buildings so much. I loved that I grew up in the city with the tallest building in the world at the time, which was then known as the Sears Tower. Now they changed the name to the Willis Tower, which is, as many native Chicagoans think, was a horrible idea. But Sears as a company obviously isn't doing that great these days. Um, <laughs> so that's part of my obsession um even in the 90s like john hancock center aeon center were very tall buildings uh in the past 20 years especially not in the united states um building really tall buildings has become a thing um (laughs) so type 101 was um one of those first structures that was built that was taller um than the sears tower so i remembered it really well um, and, you know, I'm in Taipei, so I'm like, I'm going to go there. And I was going there, um, went there just to go to, uh, Ding Tang Fung. Um, and that was, it's an amazing restaurant where they serve, uh, a certain type of dumplings that I'm not going to pr- try to pronounce right now. Um, but, uh, that was fun just going there. There's a giant mall. Um, of course, at the base of Taipei 101, um, malls, if people don't know, is a huge thing um, in um, that part of Asia. So, go up. I, I of course, um, at one point, split off from the rest of the group. I'm going to the observatory deck because I like going to observatory decks and tall buildings while I'm traveling. Especially if it's a structure that I'm really excited about. So, uh, get to the roof, um, 
you know, I have that feeling of, I just did this in Tokyo, but it was it was still really cool. It had its own unique things going on there. And um, so there was this one thing that um, I was noticing on the way out. There's all these drawings um, on the line, in the line to uh, the elevator to go back down um, to lower levels. And the drawings are different things to do in Taiwan. And they're generalized. They're not like, oh, here's this thing on this date or this, like, there's no, like, details. It's like, here's a drawing of something, drawing or just a rough painting of a certain thing. So there's different things they have there. And uh, one thing I noticed um, was for a lantern festival, um... And I'm like, oh, that's cool. That sounds cool. And um, I was just curious. I was like, well, that'd be really cool to go to. Um, I had been getting into the idea of going to a lantern festival recently. And and so I Googled it. And the lantern festival was happening that night. I'm like, wow, of the 365 days that I'm here... Um, this is the day it's happening. Um, this Lantern Festival was commemorating the last day of the Spring Festival, and the Spring Festival is the, I want to say, 15-day-long festival (laughs) that's after, um, Chinese New Year. So, (laughs) Please never fact check anything that I say because I'm going off my memory and sometimes I'm like, I'm going to screw up a detail, but <laughs> um, story's the point, not the details, but I love details. So I tell them as I remember them. Um, so anyway, I, I, I'm on a group text with everybody else in the group Um and I'm like, hey, this festival's going on tonight. Who wants to come with me? You know, 20 people. One guy responds, hey, man, I want to come. I'm like, all right, let's 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 meet up somewhere, then, like, Uber out to this Lantern Festival. The Lantern Festival is in the mountains, still in New Taipei City, but whatever. It's in a mountain village at the same time. Um, so we get out there and... Sun's kind of setting. Um, I remember seeing this like pack of lanterns um, launching. I'm like, this is so cool. I'm so excited for this. Um, you know, snapping pictures. The lanterns are floating by. And we get dropped off. And I think we have to walk into the valley. The There's like a little village, basically, in this valley. And we get down there. And I think we ask somebody... Um, you know, what, what's the deal, like, and to get into the Lantern Festival, and the guy tells us, like, well, actually, the Lantern Festival sold out, but they're constantly launching lanterns inside the village, basically, during the festival. I'm like, oh, cool. So we get to actually launch lanterns. Um, so me and my friend, we find one of the vendors, and the vendors are all... Um, and this one kind of main strip in town, and it's interesting because the main strip has um, these railroad tracks in the center, um, so occasionally trains pass through and everybody has to get off the train tracks, but um, 
in the meantime, when there's no trains passing through, everyone's on the train tracks launching lanterns. Um, so we find a vendor, and the cool thing about the lanterns is you get to paint on the lanterns, um, and then they help you launch them. So I wrote some things on the lantern, um, and the first, I think, two sides of the lantern, um, I just kind of state some feelings about, like, moving on in my life and things of this nature and being like, things are going to get better. And um, obviously I've been on this amazing trip, so, like, the last two weeks have been amazing. <laughs> um, but just general, like, things that I'm wanting to tell myself and um, my understanding, part of the lanterns is you're painting on the lanterns prayers for the year, for the new year. Um, so the two first two sides are just some, you know, some of these thoughts, right? And I'm trying to think, like, what do I do with the other two sides? Like, some of the stuff I'm kind of writing on these lanterns personal, and um, I'm curious what my friend's thinking <laughs> as I'm writing stuff, because, like, I, he's my friend, but we're relatively new friends. Like, I hadn't met this guy too long ago, and and I was thinking about it, and um, I thought about this poem um, from years prior, El Caminante. And, um, and so I looked up the poem, and I'm using Google in Taiwan. <laughs> so trying to find the English pages, whatever. And I, I find this one translation of the poem that I end up just using in English. So I'm like, I'm not amazing at Spanish, so I'm going to use an English translation. Um, so, it's cool. It's talking, you know, the translation's talking about a wanderer. Um, and it, it sounds like in the poem, someone's talking to this person, this wanderer, and... One line that stuck out, st still stands out to me, is "Wanderer, there is no road," um, and that's the last thing I wrote in this lantern, actually, because I writing the entire poem down and like I'm writing huge letters um, because I'm working with paint that's super drippy and I'm trying to get the drip, <laughs> I'm trying to get the paintbrush as dry as possible so I can paint on this lantern. Um, but I'm still writing in huge letters, so I get most of the poem down because it's a relatively large lantern. Um, but I remember, like, getting cut off. I'm like, wander, there is no road. I'm like, okay, so I guess that's all that's going to go on this lantern. Um, and I forgot the exact moment I did it, but I think it was, I think it was before I actually launched the lantern. I'm like, well, what's, what's the last line? Like, what's the line that I didn't get down? Because um, I've been so focused on just copying this poem, I'm like not thinking so much about the content of it. Like I know it speaks to me, but I'm like that's I'm having my brain is very one directional, <laughs> unidirectional kind of like I'm gonna focus on this one thing right now and nothing else. And so I I looked at the poem because like I want to remember this because I'm taking. Um, I took pictures of the lantern, and then the guy, the vendor, then helped take pictures of the lantern. So it's like, because um, I didn't know they were going to take pictures for us, but it's a very well-documented event. <laughs> and uh, the line is, there are only waves. Funny thing about that line is that 
I have since, um, in curiosity, looked up this poem several times um, in in the months that have passed, and different translations. And I have never found that same translation. Like I don't, I don't. I mean, there's only breakers. Like there's different things, different ways people translate the poem into English, but there's no translation I found that says there are only waves. Um. And I think I'm going to get more into this poem, um, dissecting it as uh, as I go along in this podcast. But um, that line from back in, I think it was early March at that point, um, really stood out to me. And so I, I launched this lantern with these words on it, and it was just an amazing experience. Um, very spiritual, very deep in my soul um, something was happening and the rest of the time at the festival was really cool too like I I remembered going to different vendors trying different food because uh, of any place I've ever gone in my life Taiwan has the best street food period um, I probably need to travel to other countries in Asia and other places in the world but man their street food is amazing, and anyone that has been to Taipei knows that. Um, and this little village that was not in the urban part of Taipei, but still new Taipei City, was no exception. There's amazing street food everywhere, so spent time with doing that, um, and then walking over to the actual official festival and watching them launch lanterns, because, you know, you have the street vendors, they're launching lanterns all the time, but the cool thing about the actual organized official festival was that they're doing launches throughout the night they did eight launches and so got to watch one and like this actually watching i remember watching one where they i think i watched two different launches and one of the launches i remember following some of the lanterns over a little bit into a forest nearby and watching them crash into a river and no fires, <laughs> um, but it was something that I couldn't pick pick up um, on my not so great iPhone six S camera. I still have an iPhone six S, um, and I just had to sit there and watch this. And I remembered it really clearly. Um, another cool thing about the festival um, being on the date that it was, it was a full moon. So that it also helped to add to the ambiance of this festival, um, watching these lanterns launch and just everything that happened that night was just amazing. Like I'll remember it for the rest of my life. Um, so after having this really cool time uh, at this lantern festival, drove back into, well, <laughs> I think what happened was Walked to a bus, bus got to a certain point, and then got into like a regular cab, took the cab to where the rest of our friends were and had a good time for the rest of the night. Um, I think there was one more day we had in Taiwan. That was a great day. Um, went to like an oceanside town with some really cool rock formations um, right next to it. They had like a quote-unquote geological park um, that was right there, and then took a cab up to this town on the side of a mountain that was 
high up, but you could like overlook into the ocean. And then they had a lot of cool um, winding streets, um, a place called Jufen. Um, and many claim that the movie Spirited Away was uh, based off of, of this town, though Miyazaki himself said it wasn't. <laughs> but there's, if you go to the town ever, um, once again, still a new Taipei city, but this mountainside town, um, they will have Spirited Away, like, um, regalia everywhere. Like, you can just get stuff. Um, clothing, um, different... Um, stuff you can buy. I'm forgetting the word right now. <laughs> this is great. Um, anyway, left Taiwan. Um, did my layover trips in those different cities I mentioned earlier. Got back to the U.S. I was in Chicago for about, I think, exactly two weeks maybe. Something like that. Um, and then I was off on to my next trip. And my next trip... Started with me going on this retreat and had an interesting beginning of that trip. Once I left the retreat, I got a flat tire in rural Mississippi uh, near Gulfport. Um, It was a Sunday late afternoon. I called up 12 Walmarts. Finally found a Walmart that had my exact tire because I didn't put a spare tire in my car. Um... Yeah, and then had a tow truck pick me up. Thankfully, a AAA uh, roadside assistance and drove me 45 minutes to the closest Walmart with the right tire. Um, and I remember driving through this town and like one memory that stuck out to me um, was a guy that was selling all his stuff on his front lawn um, trying to make some money and after, I think, spending four hours through this ordeal with this tire and seeing some other things, some other aspects of poverty in that area, and I began my drive down to South Palm Beach to stay with my aunt and uncle for a few days down there, um, I began to cry <laughs> incessantly. And um, that moment was me realizing that the fact that I had a flat tire didn't really matter because I had the opportunity to be driving and going to this place and going on these trips and exploring. And um, I spent the next 12 hours driving. (laughs) I actually didn't make it to my aunt and uncle's. I drove through the night and... um, I'm, I'm telling you the story with an end in mind, but I almost would like to go back and tell the story again sometime. Um, cause it was a really meaningful turning point for me, um, in terms of having just gone to Asia <laughs> and to go to these different countries, very different than the U S and being back in the U S and being like, well, I've been to all these States before. And, um, and having this drive, this night drive, um, really changed things because I remember I was around Gainesville, Florida, I think one thirty, two in the morning. Um, and I kept driving and I was like, maybe I should have stopped at a hotel. Like that was my original plan. And I'm like, what if I just drive for the night and then I just sleep on the beach in Miami? Um, and so 
I get down there and um, I get to the beach and I watch the sunrise um, because I realize that by the time I get to the beach, I'm like, wait, this, there's going to be a sunrise. And um, I got to watch the sunrise on the beach and it was absolutely gorgeous. Um, Oh, and, uh, yeah, this is actually a really interesting place to stop for now. Um, so, (laughs) uh, I like to plan somewhat, (laughs) but as the last story demonstrated, I also like just to go on a whim with things and... Excuse me if you're ever listening to my podcast and I sound like I'm wandering around. (laughs) I do have a point in mind, um, but I also want to keep this podcast to a certain length. And it looks like I've reached an hour. So you'll have to wait till the next episode to hear about the full story, or the part two of how this podcast came to be. But... I believe you with that for now. Thanks for listening um, to episode one. There are only waves. Uh, This was introduction part one, and part two will be coming soon. Thank you.